Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by, Christ, by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we as your church are gathered here, able to come together freely to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the work that you have done in our hearts and the work that you are continuing to do in hearts today that don't know you. As we started this study in Romans last week, God, I pray that you would speak powerfully through Pastor Jeff, that you would have us hear exactly what we need to hear, that your spirit would encourage us where we need encouraging and convict us where we need convicting. It's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. That... uh... Uh, that is also the last time he will ever do announcements. <laughs> I'm just playing. Just being a little playful. <laughs> Love that scripture. We're going to be in Romans 1, 1 through 7 this morning. We're just going to unpack just about every word and every verse in that little paragraph. What if the entire population, try to use your imagination here, were to contract a deadly virus? I know that's a stretch, but we're not just talking about like a 1% infection rate. We're talking about a pathogen so deadly that 100% of the people in the world contract it. As a matter of fact, they're born with it. What if God were to appear to you and offer you the cure, not a vaccine, not a therapy, not an ointment, but the cure, what would you do? Would you want to offer that to every single person you knew? You would. And it turns out that the human race is in such a predicament, just such a predicament. You and I have been born, according to Romans chapter 5, as we read last week, through one man's sin came to the entire human race, death. It's true. Someday, you're going to die. And you've been born into the world separated from God, exiled from His family, and exiled from relationship with God and His holy family. And what the le- this magisterial letter of Romans is going to tell us is, here's the cure. Now offer it to as many people as you can. But Paul begins this letter out by wanting to tell us who he is. He says... Number one, I'm an apostle. Let's talk about the apostle. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the word servant typically is the word in Greek. It's the word doulos. And that word typically does mean slave. Okay, it typically in the ancient Roman context would mean slave. But sometimes the word doulos or the word servant can also mean uh, honored representative, someone who has a distinguished service towards someone of high distinction or high honor. 
This is the way the word servant is used in the Old Testament. Only three people in the Old Testament get the title servant of the Lord. Try to guess who they are. Moses, David, and the Messiah, David's son in Isaiah 61. The servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord is a very high and honored title. Now, also the prophets are called servants. They serve Israel. They serve God's word. They serve God's family. And in the New Testament, Paul is going to take on this term to refer to himself. He's going to say, I am a servant. I have the honored distinction. And how does he define it? He defines that honored distinction as apostleship. What is an apostle? We're going to talk about this. He says that 1-1-B is called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So the designation apostle appears in all of Paul's letters with the exception of the earlier two, one and two Thessalonians. And this idea of being called is a technical term. It comes out of the Old Testament. I want to read it to you, Isaiah 41, 8 and 9. This is the new Jacob. So the old Jacob in chapters 1 through 39 has failed. The nation, Israel, has failed to live up to God's covenant demands. And now starting in chapter 41, the new Jacob, the new Israel is introduced. And he's not a nation, not yet. He's just a person. Look at what it says. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, I brought you from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners. I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. So understand that this idea of being chosen as God's servant is what we call provenient grace. God is the one who takes the initiative to choose the servant. He is the one who takes the initiative to elect the person whom he is going to preach through. And and Paul thinks this about himself in Galatians 1.15. Here's what he says. He says, but when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. See what Paul thinks of himself. He says, God set me apart from the womb. God called me, God knew me before I was even born. God knew me before I was even old enough to know anything. God chose me and he chose me to be an apostle. And the word apostle is used in a couple of senses in the New Testament. Capital A, apostle, or lowercase a, apostle, <laughs> right? And so there are some qualifications that come with being in the capital A camp. You can't call yourself a capital A, apostle, unless you meet these qualifications, okay? So you got to be one of the 12, or you got to be Paul. That's it. And this is quite literally what the New Testament teaches. So when it comes to the qualifications of being a member of the 12, if you read, go back and read Acts chapter 1, you can just write that down really quickly. Acts chapter 1, it tells us what the qualifications are. So there are hundreds of people. Paul tells us later in 1 Corinthians 15, there are at least 500 people in this period that Jesus has appeared to. So that's about 500 people or so, five, 600 people there who are believers in Jesus right? So in Acts chapter 1, here's what we learn. Of that 500 to 600 people who have seen the risen Jesus or believe in Jesus or are following the apostles' teachings and waiting for Jesus to pour out the Holy Spirit, of that number, 
only two people make this qualification. You have to have witnessed Jesus' ministry from uh, his baptism to his resurrection. Only two people meet that qualification. It's Mattathias and the other one. We don't remember his name because he didn't get picked. And so, other than the 12, you could be in this group, but there's another qualification, and Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in those first few verses there, what he says is this, is that Jesus appeared to about 500 people, so he appeared to the 12, Peter, and then he appeared to 500, and then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, right, his own brother, and then he appeared to the 12 again, and then he appeared least of all and last of all to me. So what Paul says is this, is that of the group, right, who meet this qualification of having seen the risen bodily, risen Jesus with their own eyes in the first century, he called me. And I was the last one to see him that way, the last one. And I am the least of all those folks. Now, Paul refers to the 12 as the 12. He doesn't think he is one of the 12. But he thinks his apostleship in terms of his authority and God's calling on his life to take the gospel to the nations, to reveal the truth, which is why he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he thinks his authority is as high as theirs, is on par with theirs. But there's another way or another qualification that we see in the New Testament, and Paul mentions this one in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul states this. He says, the signs of an apostle are these that they performed with unfailing endurance signs, miracles, wonders, and miracles. Now, God still performs miracles today in answer to our prayer. But when you look at the New Testament and you look at how the apostles uh, performed miracles, they didn't seem to have to ask God to do a miracle. Like Jesus, they seemed to have legislative miracle-working power. Their shadow just passed over someone, and that person was healed by faith. Or they just raised someone up from the dead, and that person was healed and raised from the dead. And then the word apostle, lowercase a, can be used in the sense of someone who has been called to take the gospel abroad and plant churches cross-culturally. So it can refer to people who don't belong in the category of the 12 or Paul, but they are called now, they, they are, have been commissioned to bring the gospel to the nations. We just turned the verb commissioned to a noun. We call them missionaries, right? So now we send missionaries with an apostolic mandate to go out there and bring the gospel to the far corners of the earth. But what are they called to do? Well, in verses 5 and 6, he summarizes it for us. He says, through him... Uh, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. So what does he mean by this phrase, the obedience of faith? What does he mean by this? Well, obedience of faith means the obedience that is faith. That is to say, your faith is an act of obedience when you hear the call of the gospel. And Paul says, as, as apostles, we have been called to take this gospel to the Gentiles and take this message, and they are expected to obey by believing. 
by simply receiving this gospel, the truth of it, and this message with empty and open hands by faith. Now, how do we know he defines it this way? Romans 10, 14. Romans chapter 10, the context there is clearly belief in Jesus. It's clearly a person who is not saved, who is becoming saved, who's believing in their heart and making the good confession. But the Apostle Paul says, well, how can people call on him then? The one they have not heard. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, the gospel. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. What haven't they done? They haven't obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what we what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How does he define the obedience to the gospel? It's the obedience that is faith. It's the obedience that believes, that responds in belief. And so this is what the apostles are called to do. And he wants to tell us that. Number two, the scriptures. Oh boy, here we go. Buckle up. Verse two. He says, what have we been called to to bring? To the nations, well, the gospel of God, it's God's gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, God promised the gospel through the prophets in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, they just call it the Bible, right? They just call it their Bible, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures. So, folks, in an effort to obey Ephesians 4.3, which says to make every effort, be eager and make every effort to maintain the bond of unity over these things, I want to say this. I typically do not harp on other ministries. I typically do not even mention them from the pulpit. I typically don't mention pastors by name, especially if they're famous pastors teaching something that's kind of, but once I see that thing's getting into the bloodstream of the church, then I feel obligated as your shepherd, the under-shepherd of Christ, to stand here and correct that. So I want to mention a position taken by Andy Stanley. Some of you may know him. Many of you do, probably. Who's a pastor of a very large, famous church in Atlanta, Georgia. Now let me say this, okay? Andy Stanley is a brother in the Lord whose heart and soul is totally committed by his own admission to reaching the lost. He is totally committed to reaching the unchurched for Christ. And I have tremendous admiration for him in many, many ways. He's a phenomenal speaker, a wonderful leader, writes very good leadership books, leadership principle books, and his ministry there has led many people to faith, a confession of faith and baptism in the Lord. but, But on this issue... I have to say that Andy is just wrong-headed. And his issue, essentially what he has repeatedly claimed is that preachers like me and churches like this need to unhitch, that's his word, unhitch, which essentially means to disengage the message of the gospel from the Bible. He literally says that. And he, we need to disentangle the message of the gospel, which he takes to me, the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus from the Bible, because one, the Bible is incredible to secular or unchurched people. Well, duh. <laughs> I think we can stipulate that. Number two, your youth and children run the risk if you try to ground their faith in the Bible 
of being confronted by secularists when they grow up and get out into the world who will show them that the Bible is not credible. Okay. Number three, but once their secular professors and friends demonstrate that the Bible is not a credible document, right? It's not to be taken seriously. Your poor, little, ill-equipped youth and children who grow up and go into the workforce or go into the university, they will lose their faith utterly, okay? So, number four, stop trying to defend the indefensible. Don't preach faith in the Bible because the Christian faith is not based on the Bible. It's based on a historical event. Now, some of that is actually true, You wouldn't have a New Testament if it were not for the historical event of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. You wouldn't even know about any of it if it were not for that one event. That's true. But you wouldn't have that event if it wasn't for the Scriptures prophesying and anticipating that event. And so how about this? I have a (laughs) counterproposal. How about instead of creating worship services that feel like rock and roll worship shows, and sermons that feel like TED Talks and self-help speeches? How about we structure our worship so that when our people come in the door, we lift before them the God-honoring praise and exaltation of Jesus, God's only Son? How about that? How about when you come in the door, you, every song you sing is about God, highly and exalted, and we enlarge your eyes and thus your appetite for a holy, awesome God. How about instead of preaching TED Talks and principles and topical sermons, how about we preach the hard truths of Scripture? Do you know that Jesus preached the hardest truths he had to say in front of his largest audiences? And he never compromised on that. How about instead of being ashamed of the Bible, How about instead of that, why don't we teach them right doctrine? Why don't we train our kids to be biblically and theologically literate so that when they leave youth church and go out into the world, they're grounded and rooted in the scriptures, and they know how to defend the defensible, which is the Bible. I, I, I assure you the problem here is not that our youth are abandoning their faith because they have too often been rooted in the Scriptures. (laughs) I promise you that's not the problem. The problem is that they have not often enough been grounded in the Word. And so the biblical authors in Jesus hear me well. They do not know any gospel. Paul, Peter, Jesus, they don't know any gospel that is not rooted in the Scriptures. They don't know any gospel that isn't prophesied, promised, and anticipated by their Hebrew Bible. Luke 24, 44, I want to show you something. I want to show you something. Now, Jesus has risen from the dead. He literally, in chapter 24, he has risen from the dead. He has appeared to some of his disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus, and he told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here is the resurrected Jesus in a resurrected body appearing to his disciples, and he doesn't just say, well, here I am. His first instinct, his first mandate is to take them back to the word, back to Moses and the prophets and the Psalms to show him that this, what you are seeing right now, was prophesied. This is the result of a story. 
that God began in Abraham and is now being culminated, is now coming to its completion in me, it's biblical. You say, well, they were good Jewish boys. Of course he had to dis- describe himself or teach about himself in the Old Testament. What about these Gentiles in Corinth? Here's what Paul says, verse 3. He says, for I passed on to you as most important of first importance what I also received from Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. That Christ, the doctrine that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Even when talking to the pagans and the Gentiles in Corinth who didn't grow up in Torah school, they didn't grow up in the synagogue, they have a fascination with the Old Testament, they like it, they're interested in it, they're intrigued by it, but Paul has to say now to these Gentile Christians, listen, the gospel I gave to you was the gospel that was according to the Old Testament. It was according to the Scriptures. And the writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways, through the Bible, right? Through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. But he says, in these last days, he has spoken. God has spoken in finality in the person of his son. Because God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance. That means the effulgence, the outring, the raying forth of God's glory. And he is the exact instantiation. He is the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. From first to last, this is a gospel of the word. From first to last. Now, this is a marvelous passage here. But all of this culminates in Jesus the Messiah, who is the living word through whom the scriptures come. So again, Paul wants to begin this magisterial letter by saying, I'm talking about the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand in the scriptures. Three, who was promised? Let's talk about the king. Let's talk about the king. Romans 1.3, he says, this is the gospel of God concerning his son. So there's no gospel that's not according to the scriptures, and there's no gospel that's not concerning his son. (laughs) This is the gospel that is about the son of God. Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and who was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now, all of these are royal terms. They all are. The the term God's Son or the Son of God, there are two senses in the Bible, in the New Testament, in which that that phrase is used. I'm going to give them to you today. Now, most of the time, Christians only identify the phrase son of God in the second sense. We're going to get to that. That's the stuff that Christians love to talk about. We love to talk about the deity of Jesus. We love to talk about him existing in eternity, past, as God the Son. You know, we love that. We're going to get to that in a second. But I want to show you firstly and foremostly how ancient Near Eastern people and ancient Greco-Romans heard this term. I want to show it to you. The first way is that that it is a title of preeminence. This is the first way in which the Bible uses this term. It's God's divine son king who is over the nations. Now, I've given you a few verses there in your outline. You can look them up later. I could have given you five times as many verses. So many passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms. So many passages in which we learn this. God has an earthly son who reigns in his stead. God has a son king, a viceroy, a vice regent. 
a co-heir who reigns the world as a human image bearer. Now, that's the promise that God made David. He made that promise to David, and I want to show you how it, from David, it expands into Jesus. 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 16. This is God's covenant. This is God's promise to David. Let's read the whole thing here. You got to see it. God says, I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them. What's the place? Israel. The land of Israel, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. So the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make you a house. You're trying to build me a house, and I'm telling you, I'm going to build you a dynasty. And when your time comes and, you're, and you rest with your ancestors, your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build my house, build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. This is a pretty general promise. Generally, what God is promising here are two things. He's promising him the land. There, he's going to establish him in the place and give him rest from the border wars with the Canaanites and the Persians and the Assyrians and the Sumerians and all these people who are constantly at war with them in the Philistines. So it's a land promise, and it's also a line promise. God is promising him here that you're going to have a descendant. You're going to have a son, that's Solomon, who is going to begin in him an everlasting dynasty, a house. So it's a line, pretty general. Look at Psalm 2. Watch how God expands the land promise into the rest of the world and then zooms the line promise into a definite son. What does he do? He expands the land promise into all the nations of the earth. Now, this kingdom is going to encompass the whole world, and then he zooms the line promise into one son. Watch it. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his Mashiach, his Messiah, his anointed one. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So in Psalm chapter 2, God says through David, someday there's going to come a son of David, a Messiah, an anointed king. And this is what is going to happen. He is going to subdue the raging nations. And God is going to give him the nations as his inheritance. This is a powerful passage here. This is David looking forward to a future David-eyed, a future little David who will reign on his throne. Psalm 89 picks up this same theme. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. I have found David. I found him, my servant. I have exalted one chosen from among the people. I will set his hand on the sea, and I will make him the highest of the kings of the earth. This was not a part of the original promise. It has expanded. 
The scope of his reign has now expanded from Israel, that 20-mile strip of land, to all the nations of the earth. And the line is coming down to a son, a descendant, a seed, someone who will reign on his throne forever. Now, you need to know that this is the way the New Testament authors interpreted all of these David passages. All of these David passages, as they go into the prophets, and you read, we read them all the time during Christmas. I love Christmas, but I also like to talk about Christmas now. We read Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 14. We read Isaiah chapter 61. We read all of these passages during Christmas time when Jesus is born. Folks, they are fulfilled in him. And that's the way the New Testament authors saw it. Mark 12, 35 through 37. This is while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked the question, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, that's weird. (laughs) Because David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Well, David himself calls him Lord. Well, how then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. People were like, oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> you know, that's, that's cool. How can the son of David be David's Lord? Because the son of David is going to come, and he's going to inherit that promise in Psalm 2 and Psalm 89 and many other passages to receive the inheritance of the nations. And this is best expressed in Paul's titles, two titles right here in Romans at the beginning. The first one is Christ. That is the Greek word Christos. Christos is the Jewish title for God's anointed king. But the second title is not the Jewish title. The second title is Lord. That's Caesar's title. It's the word kurios. And the word kurios is Caesar's title. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, I've come with the gospel of God. Here's here's who it's about. It's about Jesus Christ, the anointed king of Israel, and the world's true Lord. Caesar's kingdom is a sham. And there's one true king who is coming into the world. So Jesus is exalted as God's king to David's eternal and heavenly throne. Here's how the apostles put it in Acts 5.31. They say, God exalted this man, Jesus of Nazareth, to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So God has now, in fact, exalted him to the heavenly throne of David. He rules over all. Hebrews 2.8 says this, that God has subjected, put everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So positionally, Jesus Christ reigns over all. There is no kingdom, there is no people, there is no place on earth that is not under his reign. But then he goes on to say, as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Do we? Don't you wish we did? I wish right now that everything in this world was subjected to Christ because he'd run it better. He would. He'd run your healthcare system better, your government better, you name it. Jesus could run it better, and he will. But right now, we live in his realm. It is his realm, but there's a rebellion going on in this realm. There's an active rebellion against him. The nations are raging against the Son, God's Son King. But someday, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 is going to be true. Then comes the end. The end is coming. It's not going to keep on forever like this. 
And when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when Jesus Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule, all authority, and all power, he's going to do this. This is where it's going. This is what we're coming to. Christ's reign and rule, he is going to come back here in his second coming, and he is going to bring the nations under his rule. So firstly and foremostly, the title God's Son refers to the preeminent position that Jesus has been given as the Son of David. And his son has been appointed. He's been inaugurated. He's been coronated God's divine son king. This is the gospel concerning his son. But it's also a title of preexistence. This is what you are waiting for, all you good Trinitarians. (laughs) This is what we talk about mostly. When we use the word God, God's son, or the phrase the son of God, this is mostly what we mean. We can't forget that first definition, though. But now we learn that this Son King is also God the Son (laughs) from eternity past. It's powerful. So God the Son who was incarnate in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So the incarnation or the enfleshing of God's Son King, we learn that there is an added dimension to his kingly nature. The New Testament reveals that this is actually God from eternity. John 1.1. I want to read it to you. Let's take a second. Do you have a second? You, You got somewhere to be? Let's do it. It says, in the beginning, what beginning? Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so, but in the beginning, the Word was there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, so He was with God there in the beginning. And the Word was God. So before beginning began, who was there? God. And the Word. And He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him, and apart from Him, Not one thing was created that has been created. How could John say that clearer? Okay, there's two categories. Here's a circle. In that circle goes all things. Everything in the spectrum of creation that has been made. And then in this circle is the creator of that circle. Which one does Jesus belong in? This one. He's the creator of this category. He made everything that is in that circle. So he's the creator of all things. He could not be clearer. Verse 14, powerful. Then the word became enfleshed, (laughs) and he tabernacled. He dwelt among us, and we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Verse 18, and no one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God, is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. I I just don't think he could say it any clearer than that. We are dealing with a son king, a son of David, according to the flesh, but declared, revealed, God the Son from eternity past. This is why we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share the same attributes, the the same power, the same prerogatives, the same titles. The passage that brings these two concepts together, the preeminent son and the preexisting son, is Colossians 1. If if you've never memorized this passage, remember where it is. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, does that phrase mean that he was the first created? No. Firstborn is a title of preeminence. It's the same title that God gives Jacob. Was Jacob born before Esau? No. It doesn't have to do with his first appearance. It has to do with a title. 
It's the right of primogenitor. What it means is this, is that I'm giving you the inheritance. The firstborn gets everything. Jacob gets it all, Esau not so much. Okay? Israel is called God's firstborn nation. Was Israel before Egypt? No, they weren't. But God has given Israel the inheritance, the promises, the covenants that lead us to Christ. So you have to understand the term firstborn means the right to rule over, the right to inherit God's inheritance. So he's the firstborn over all creation. That's why he doesn't say he's the firstborn from creation or the firstborn of creation. He's over it. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, so it couldn't be clearer, and by him all things hold together. So the very atomic particles that hold together, Jesus is holding them together by his powerful word. It's powerful. And then he says this, he is also the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. So he rules over all of those who are born from among the dead. That is, all of those who receive resurrection life. So that he might be, uh, come to have first place. Some of your translations say preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him bodily. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Understand this. We are talking about God's king and he is the son of David according to the flesh, and he is declared the son of God, the king, over all the earth, and he's also God the son. He's the second person of the Trinity. Romans 1, 4, again, Jesus Christ was appointed to be the powerful son of God. He was inaugurated, he was coronated according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So it is his resurrection that is the coronation of God's son in power. So let's recap today. Paul was called, sanctified, set apart to be a herald. He was commissioned to take this gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to the nations so that the nations could respond to the gospel in faith, obedient faith. And it is the gospel foretold and anticipated in the Jewish scriptures. It is promised, it is prophesied, it is expected by the Old Testament. And this concerns a descendant of David who, is now, who now has, has and holds the preeminent title of God's son who rules over all. He is the preexistent son who was born to rule and to seek and to save that which was lost. So the question is here today, do you know the gospel? Do you know the word? Is your life grounded in it? Because going back to Andy Stanley's challenge, I agree with him in some ways. Listen, if you and, I are, you and I are not grounded in a truth beyond ourselves, in the event, the historical event of the resurrection, our faith won't hold. But that event, that message is grounded in God's promise and his word through the holy scriptures. Do you know the word? Is your life rooted in it? Let's pray. God, we thank you that this passage was written to all in Rome, but also to all of those who are in Idaho. And just like the Romans, we are loved by God and called to be your holy saints. And we thank you for this gospel that transforms our lives. We thank you for this message that changes 
changes us. It changes our status, but it also transforms us into image, the image of Christ. We thank you that the grace that, and the peace with God that you have given us through the gospel with the Father. We thank you that you rule over all and have been exalted to David's throne high above the earth and that someday you're going to return to bring the nations and their rebellion and their raging under your rule. And everyone will know your benevolent, gracious rule. And until then, we live in the reign of grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ reigns in us because we have been justified by faith and because the Holy Spirit has set us free from enslavement to sin. We thank you for it, Lord. If you're here this morning and you don't have this hope and you haven't made that confession, would you do it now? Now's the time. Your responsibility is to obey the gospel in faith, to respond and say, yes, I believe that. I believe that's true. Jesus died on a cross for my sins and he rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. And he was declared God's son, declared the king over all. And he's my king. He's my Lord. He's my savior. God, we thank you for it. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that you're doing in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.